Would you pray with me, please? God, it is so good just to be together this morning and to sing praises to you. And one of the reasons we do this, God, is just to be filled up, to be re-energized and recharged after a week that we've been through so that we can be, God, used as an instrument in your hands. That's our prayer this morning. So that when we leave this place, we can extend your forgiveness, your grace, your pardon in this world. So make that happen, God, in our hearts and in our lives. Use us to your glory and your honor, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. So in the early years of Christianity, there was a man who lived by the name of Augustine. He was a theologian and a philosopher. He lived about 350 years after Jesus died. He was, if you met him and talked with him, you'd just basically say he was a bit of a geek. Uh, But he was a brilliant thinker, and he had an incredible influence on the early church, especially on how we think about the nature of God, and especially the Trinity. And after a lifetime of studying the Scriptures, and a lifetime of writing, and frankly debating, with other theologians about the Trinity, here's what Augustine had to say. Here's how he summed it all up. He said, to try to understand the Trinity, and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity, and you'll lose your soul. Well, that sets up some interesting guardrails for our discussion this morning. Which one do we pursue? Should we aim for crazy or hell-bent? And with the audience in the room, how will we know the difference? Seriously, I mean, I read that as I was studying, and I thought, what chance do I have if Augustine, one of the brightest minds in all of Christian history, couldn't wrap his head fully around the Trinity? What chance do I have to do that and summarize it in 25 minutes? Me, the Forrest Gump of theology, right? Then I began to think, you know, deep down, I think every single one of us has questions about God that we just can't get answered. Even the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans asked this question, is there anyone out there who can explain God? I think we all have that question deep in our heart, no matter how strong our faith is. I think we wonder, what's he really like? We look for words to describe him when we're talking to our friends, whether they know God or not. We do our best to find a way to express the inexpressible. And so as believers, we find ourselves living in this constant tension. We believe that God is the greatest being 
in all of time. And at the same time, he remains for us the most elusive personality to grasp. Well, good morning, everybody. Pardon me a second while I set up my care station here. I'm in the last stages of a cold, and that wasn't fog that was coming around the band. That was an antiseptic mist (laughs) to protect them. Uh, So the cold has settled right here in my throat. So if at some point it gives out during the message, they're just going to kick in the recording of first service, and I'm going to lip sync. (laughs) So we'll see how I do with that. Uh, We're going to tackle the topic of the Trinity this morning as we wrap up this series, What the Bible Teaches, that we don't really know a whole lot about. Uh, And there is actually no single Bible passage that gives us a clear explanation of God's nature, of His persona, or for that matter, the Trinity. And just to be clear, that word, the Trinity, isn't even used in Scripture. Historians record for us that Tertullian was the first theologian who actually began using the word Trinity to try to explain the nature of God. He lived about 200 years after Jesus. And he was doing his best in his study, in his writings, and in his work to combat some false teachers who were doing a lot of damage to individual Christians and to the work of the church around the nature of God. And Tertullian wasn't the only one battling this, but he was the dominant voice. So he's credited with actually beginning to use that word. That struggle that he was in lasted well beyond him for about the next hundred years or so in the church. When a a group of church leaders actually got together and formulated a document that became known as the Nicene Creed. It was a brilliant work that clarified what the scriptures say about a few core issues of faith, including the nature of God and the Trinity, though that document also didn't use the word Trinity. The Nicene Creed has stood for nearly 17 centuries as a basic definition of the Christian faith. Now, not a lot has changed on how we view the Trinity in those 17 centuries. So we'll use that as a springboard to help us dive into the Christian faith and what we believe and what the Bible says and doesn't say about the Trinity. The first thing the Bible says is that God is three persons. It's in one of the songs that we sang earlier. We identify those three persons first as the Father. And He is considered the first person of the Trinity. It's the one we usually refer to as God in the scriptures, and in our conversation. second person in the Trinity is the Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who mediates between us and God. He's the one who came to earth and died for our sins. The third person is the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago in a message I did in January, and the critical roles that he plays in our life as believers. How the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He gives us spiritual gifts And he assures us of our salvation, he convicts us of sin in our life, and he empowers us to live the life that God calls us to. crazy thing about it is, the Bible doesn't actually teach the idea of the Trinity. 
it, it just actually kind of assumes we get it, that we understand it. There's no scripture in the Old Testament or the New Testament that actually says God exists in three persons. But it's all over the pages of Scripture. All the writers in the Old Testament and New Testament just say it as though we understand it already. It's there from the first chapter of Genesis. Darren talked about creation last week. If you read that first chapter, the idea that God exists in three persons is there. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image. Who's God talking to? Ever wonder that as you read it? Who, who is he? Well, he doesn't explain that. You have to kind of piece it together. The beginning of that chapter says, the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. You move over to John 1. And it explains to us that Jesus was present at creation and actually through Jesus, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's on the earth. So you weave together all of Scripture and you come up with that. In fact, if you go back to the very first verse in Genesis, the Hebrew word used for God is Elohim. It's the name of God. And it's a plural name, not a singular name. And in the Hebrew language, it means more than two. And so all of that doesn't really prove the Trinity. It doesn't argue the Trinity. It just allows for the Trinity. And that's kind of the approach the Old Testament takes. Just allowing for the Trinity, not really naming the Trinity. One author said it's kind of like furniture in a dimly lit room. You get the outline, but you don't really get the specifics until you get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, you see Paul and other writers actually spelling out the persons of the Trinity. Paul writes something like this in the opening of all of his letters as a blessing. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. So he's giving us two of the persons in the Trinity. When Paul dives deeper into theological issues specifically about salvation... He says things like this in Ephesians 2.18. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. In one verse, one teaching, he lays out all three persons of the Trinity. He does that multiple times in his letters. Again, he just lays it out. He doesn't explain it. He just states it as a fact. Those and scores of other passages become the basis for our understanding that God does in fact exist as three persons. And I'm just going to stop there and say, while the word person is the most common word that's used by theologians and authors for describing the three aspects of God, it's not a perfect word. Because when we think about persons... What we think of as an individual who has their own characteristics, who has their own physical body, who exists separate and unique, well, that kind of breaks down when you think about the Trinity. The Trinity doesn't exist completely separately from each other. 
The Trinity isn't physical. God doesn't have a physical body. In fact, the only passage that tells us anything about who God is is when Jesus says in John 4, God is spirit. And His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So, what words do we use to describe the substance, the essence of God? You ever wonder what it's going to be like one day when we meet God face to face? What is it that we'll see? What is it that we would be able to touch? Or even smell? What will our senses, such as they are at that point, experience in the presence of God? I don't think it's going to be like the picture that Grandma had on her wall of what Jesus looked like. It's going to be something different. How do we take in something that is eternal and infinite, not bound by human restrictions, and still describe it with the limitations of human language? ever go there? I honestly don't know how. And the Bible doesn't help us on that. I I remember reading the book, The Shack. Anybody ever read that? There's a few of you. It was this novel written, and in it, it, it did and it didn't address some of these issues. And I didn't read the book until it'd been out like five or six years. Okay, I'm one of those people. It's like if something is really popular and it's taking over culture, I resist it. You know, not, not because I'm not an early adopter. I do that with technology. But with that book, I just went, really? I'm not going to be one of those people who's reading that book. So when it had been out like five or six years, I picked up a really beaten up copy and I started reading it. In the book, the main character's daughter has been killed and he ends up on this journey you know, that's causing him to examine his faith. And whether it's a dream or it's reality is never really resolved, I don't think. But there's a point where he's at this shack out in the wilderness, and he goes into this shack, and he has this meeting, this encounter with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus turns out to be an overweight African-American woman who's cooking dinner for him on a stove. I'll just be honest with you, at that point, when I started reading that encounter, I set the book down for a while. And I just kind of went, that is not my perception of Jesus. It just messed with me. And then I went, Liz, I I just channeled my wife's voice to me, and I said, I'm not always right. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm no more right than he is. We have no idea what Jesus looks like now. He took on human form for a while. When he ascended back to heaven, what does he look like? I go back to Jesus' words, and I wonder if sometimes in John 4, if Jesus telling us that God is a spirit isn't just an attempt to accommodate our limited language. How would God describe himself to us if he weren't limited by human language? What's he like? What's Jesus like? What's the Holy Spirit like? 
my wife messed with me last night, and she said, well, you know, in the Old Testament, the word for Holy Spirit's feminine. And I said, no, shut up. Just... <laughs> it's just there's all of this that we don't think about. And so the theologians have settled on saying God has three persons. Well, I honestly don't know what to call those three aspects, expressions of God, because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says there are three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for whatever God is. But of this we can be sure. God exists as three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Jesus left the earth, he took the same path that Paul would later take. He uses the concept of the Trinity as an assumption and commissions his followers with these words. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in addition to teaching us that God is three, the Bible also tells us there is only one God. That truth is anchored throughout Scripture. The idea that God exists as three doesn't mean that we are polytheists, that there are three gods residing in heaven. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians when he says there is only one God. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is only one God. The Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. (laughs) Now, understanding how those two theological truths blend together, that's where it gets challenging. That's where it starts to, to stretch us. God is three persons or some things. God is three, yet there's only one God. And the Father is not the same as the Son. The Son is not the same as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the same as the Father. Each one is divine, and yet there are not three gods but one God. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Make sense? Thank you. No, it doesn't. It's a mystery. That's the idea of the Trinity. And we don't know how it works beyond those simple ideas. It's not spelled out for us. It's taught as a fact and not spelled out beyond that in the Scripture. But that doesn't stop people from coming up with all kinds of illustrations to try to explain it. Try to help us wrap our heads around it. I grew up in the church, and my Sunday school teachers would try to do all of these explanations to try to help us as kids understand it. The most common one was they would say to us, well, it's kind of like the molecule H2O. Anybody ever heard that one? So it's like, You can experience H2O in various forms. It shows up as what? Water, ice, and steam. Thank you. First service, somebody said snow. I went, (laughs) can tell we live in Chicago. It's only got three forms, water, ice, and snow. You know, that's 11 months out of the year. We never get steam. No, it shows up as water, ice, and steam. Well, see, that whole illustration breaks down because a single molecule of H2O can't be all three at the same time. 
Other people say, well, it's like an apple with the seed, the flesh, and the skin. Same problem. It's like an egg, the shell, the yolk, and the whites. Same problem. Plus, you never scramble God and have him with bacon. Especially in the Old Testament. The Jews would never have bacon. Um, you, can't, you can't say those things. And all of these. And then the Irish say, well, it's like a three-leaf clover. I wish I could do an Irish accent at that point. I just wish. All of those illustrations start to break down. I've never encountered one that really works. I wish there was a perfect illustration to explain this mystery. There's not. If you've got one, I'd love to hear it after the service. Because for centuries, really intelligent people, scholars, theologians, authors, critics, have looked at this idea of the Trinity and they've scoured the pages of Scripture. And when it's all said and done, they disagree on everything. Except, God exists as three, and there's only one God. Maybe the most intelligent thing that I've read on this topic over the last three to four weeks was this. This idea of the Trinity is a terribly difficult subject, far beyond the ability of our limited minds to grasp. Nevertheless, it is extremely important to declare what the Bible holds and be silent where the Bible is silent. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Bible presents this as fact, and it does not explain it. I love the simplicity that Billy Graham can bring to things. In the end, that's all we know. We don't know how it all works together. We don't know how it's possible to be three yet one. We don't have any examples of that in nature. We don't know a lot about the personal, relational details of the Trinity. And so if we don't know, why are we talking about it? I mean, after all this, you can kind of get a handle on why. Augustine said, to try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. So why did he go on to say, deny the Trinity... And you'll lose your soul. What happens if we ignore this concept, or even worse, if we bail on the idea entirely? See, there is a lot about God that we can learn from Scripture about His person, about His nature, about His qualities, and about His relationship with us. But the question here in the Trinity is, what do we do with the things we don't understand? What do we do when God gives us just information, just enough information in Scripture to leave us scratching our heads? When we dig and dig only to realize we're never going to have enough information to make a definitive statement. I think the idea of the Trinity falls in that category for a lot of us. There is enough information to believe that God exists as three. And enough information to believe that, God, that there is only one God. But not enough information to grasp the whole concept completely. To be able to clearly explain it to somebody else, how it works. It calls for faith. And here's the rub. Because it's clearly embraced in the Bible, because Jesus 
embraced it. We don't have the option to throw it out. There are churches that do. They just simply declare, we don't believe in the idea of the Trinity. Make things simpler. It'd be a lot easier to not have to wrestle with difficult ideas and just throw them out. But I don't think that's possible with this. Here's why. The Bible is very clear that Jesus was fully God. And that is the, one of the core ideas in the Trinity. In fact, Jesus was very clear when he taught that he was fully God. He said repeatedly in his teaching that he was equal to God and that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. His audience has picked up on that. It is the key reason they wanted to kill him. The religious leaders, ordinary people who listened to Jesus, looked at him and said to him, you're claiming to be God. And while their eyes were fixed on him and their words were directed at him, they were reaching for stones to kill him. They got it. Nowhere is it clearer in Scripture that Jesus' first followers believed that he was God than in Philippians 2. Paul, writing to a church, said this, though he, Jesus, was God. Just stop. Paul wasn't saying Jesus was godly. He wasn't saying Jesus aspired to be like God. He flat out says, Jesus was God. And in spite of that, he didn't think of his equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. And he took the humble position of a slave. And was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And he died a criminal's death on the cross. That encapsulates the central truth that separates Christianity from other world faiths. There are a lot of other world religions that believe that Jesus lived. They don't deny that fact. They believe that he taught very good things. Believe that he was killed by the Roman government with the help of the Jewish leaders. There are even other world religions that believe that Jesus is going to return in bodily form at the end of time. But where the line in the sand is drawn and disagreements come is when you begin to talk about the idea that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he was fully divine. Scripture is very clear. 
If Jesus wasn't God, then his death on the cross was meaningless. All that happened that Friday afternoon on that hill outside of Jerusalem was that a good man died for nothing. And our worship of him is pointless. The Bible says that salvation is possible only because Jesus, being fully God and having lived a perfect life in a fully human form, was in the unique position of being able to offer a perfect sacrifice for you and for me and erase our sins. And in the end, it's not just the concept of the Trinity, but our faith itself that hinges on that question that Jesus asked to Peter 2,000 years ago when he said, Who do you say I am? It is the most important question that has ever been asked. Because how we answer that question charts a path for our life, for our relationships, for how we conduct our business, everything we do. Let me ask you, how would you answer that question today? Have you ever thought about it seriously? Do you put Jesus in the category of just a good teacher? An honorable man? Or do you believe that he was fully God and that he died for your sins? It's a question every one of us needs to wrestle with. We need to make a decision on it at some point in our lives. Because what we believe shapes our heart, it shapes our mind, it shapes our life, and it ultimately will shape our eternity. So what do you believe? You know, I'm grateful that Westridge isn't like the church that I grew up in, and at this point, they would have offered some kind of a song, has an emotional tug, and would have invited you to come down front, and would have been a lot of emotional decisions, you know, about what do you believe and make some kind of a public profession of faith. I'm glad we don't do that here. But by the same token, I don't want the lack of that to communicate that it's not an important question to wrestle with. So I would encourage you to keep wrestling with that question about what you believe, about who Jesus is. We'd be happy to just have a conversation, no pressure. If you want to talk with Wally, our Connections Pastor, if you want to talk with me, talk with Darren, our emails are on the back of the program. Talk with the people you came with today. 